Before I start reading in Haggai, I want to give you a little background, <clears throat> kind of the setting for where this takes place. The children of Israel had just come out of uh, Babylon. They were captives in Babylon for some time, and they had come out, and they had gone back to, to Jerusalem, and they had desired to begin rebuilding the wall and to begin rebuilding the temple. And they actually started doing that. And there was great rejoicing when they were doing this. And so I wanted to just read you a section, just two verses out of Ezra, to just kind of, it conveys this joy that they had in this rebuilding of the, uh, the temple. Yet many of the priests and the Levites, heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the jo- shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. So you can see there's a lot, great deal of rejoicing at the fact that finally we get to rebuild the temple. The foundation has been laid, and they are very happy about it. But you go to verse or chapter 4 of Ezra, just the next chapter, they begin to receive some opposition to the work. And this is what it says in verses 4 and 5 of Ezra 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their plant, their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then the people of the land began to write, the the leaders wrote letter to the king, Artaxerxes. And it says, to King Artaxerxes, this is in verses 11 and 13, to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from where you have from where you have come to us at Jerusalem, they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the king. So they're bringing slanderous accusation to the king to stop this building. And in fact, they had to stop. And that's what happened. There was a period of time where with this opposition, they had to stop building the, the temple. They had to stop building the walls. <clears throat> and then we get to Haggai. And so let me just read the first chapter of Haggai because that's where I'll be speaking from. In the second year of Darius the king... On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts. The people says, the time has not come even for the the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then in verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld produce, or the sky has, uh, the earth has withheld produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains and on the grain and on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God with the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. So you get the picture here. They had started the work of rebuilding the wall, and they had some opposition, and they had to delay it for a season, but they got used to it. They got used to the way of living without even any concern for the temple. And that's what the Lord's bringing out here in verse 2. Look at it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people says the time has, has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to rebuild, be rebuilt. It's like, yeah, we'll get to it, but not yet. Not now. Now's not the time. We'll get around to it, but not yet. And so the Lord then rebukes them. And that's what you see in verses 3 through 5. He's rebuking them and he says to them, he asks them a question in his rebuke. He says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? In other words, what he's saying is, is it, you don't have time to rebuild the walls of the or the the temple 
but you seem to have plenty of time to take care of your own business. That's, that's the issue. Time wasn't the issue. Priority was the issue. And didn't have time for the temple, but had plenty of time for their paneled houses to live in their nice houses. And the Lord says, consider your ways. Think about how you're living. That's what he's saying here. Think about it. Where's your heart? Think about it. Well, then he goes on. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, this, this thing of, um, let me, before I get off track here, this thing of uh, considering your ways and thinking about it is something that's really important. We need to do that occasionally. We need to take inventory. But you look at the attitude of the people and where their heart was and look at the attitude of King David and where his heart was. Now, in, in, King, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 and 2, King David is talking to Nathan, the priest, and he's saying, here I am living in this, this comfort, but the, the ark of God is in a tent. That's not right. See, it bothered David. Here's the way he put here's the way it's put in 2 Samuel. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, I guess prophet, I said priest, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. See, it was bothersome to David because his heart was after God. He was a man after God's own heart. God had his heart. The people of Judah here in, the, in this section, they were, didn't matter. That wasn't a priority to them. The temple wasn't a priority. To David, it was a priority. We need to get a temple built for the ark of God. And, of course, the Lord says, you're not going to do it, but your son will. And they did. Solomon built the temple. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God dwelt. He met with his people at the temple. That's where he dwelt. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the New Testament, Paul says, your bodies are the temple of God. Your bodies are where the Holy Spirit dwells. So we're making a transition to, it's a personal thing now. And if you look, and even in Isaiah in the Old Testament, it's, it, God is talking about he wants your heart. That's what he wants. Yeah. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. The, thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? But this is the one I will look to, to him who is humble, contrite and who trembles at my word he's looking at your heart and where is your heart that's the question where is your heart is it settling for things of this life or is your heart settling wanting more of God that's the thing and wanting God's honor in your life <clears throat> The Lord's rebuking them in this section. 
for not putting God's interests above their own. Their own interests were the priority, not God's interests. And that's what they're being rebuked for. Matthew Henry said, it's, a, it's the great concern of every one of us to consider our ways. We need to apply our minds with all seriousness to the great and necessary duty of self-examination and communing with our own hearts concerning our spiritual state. Where, are, where am I? Where's my heart? And we see this in other places in the scripture. I just listed a couple, but there's, there's more. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I considered my ways and turned my feet to thy testimonies. I considered my ways and turned my feet. Lamentation says, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. So the purpose of self-examination is not to just take a microscope and always be looking, how am I doing, how am I doing? But if God has spoken to you about something, as in the case here about rebuilding the temple, and they hadn't followed through on it, they just got complacent, didn't matter, time to consider your ways. And when you do that, the intent uh, when God tells you to consider your ways is to repent, get things right. That's God's desire is to have your heart and to be in right relationship with them. And that, whatever it is that's hindering that, that's what God wants you to get right. Get it right. <clears throat> he goes on then in verse 6, and he tells them how much they have worked and how little they have to show for it. He says, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, there's not enough to, be, to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And then this section, this really spoke to me. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. You're working like crazy, and it's just falling out. You, you have nothing to show for your efforts. Something to think about. And then he goes on and tells them again in verse 7. Consider your ways. Matthew Henry said, They neglected the building of God's house and put that off that they might have time and money for their own affairs or secular affairs, he says. God, by his providence, kept them still behindhand, in other words, still lacking. And that poverty which they thought to prevent by not building the temple, God brought upon them for not building the temple. In other words, they're working out here trying to make ends meet. Well, we can't afford to do that. We can't afford to put our time and money into the temple. I got I to take care of my own stuff. And the very thing that they had to take care of, God caused there to be a lack in. Oftentimes, when we neglect putting God's interests first in our lives, we find ourselves lacking in that very area that we do put first. 
and it happens in relationships, it happens in finances, it happens in different places. That's the thing we're living for. That's the thing we have paramount, not God, something else. And God's going to cause, and you see this in here, God caused those things to happen. Why did he cause those things to happen? Because he loved them. He wants them to draw them back. It's not punishment in one sense. It's consequences for sure. But it's, it's I want your heart. Come back to me. And that, he, he lays it out there. And then in verse 8, he gives them instruction. He tells them what they need to do. And then he reiterates it back in 9 through 11. He tells them again, this is what's happened to you. This is why there's lack. Let me read just verse 9. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. The Lord blows it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Keep doing your own thing, but neglecting God. And then he goes on and explains some other things in there. But he's explaining to them why they're suffering lack. They're suffering lack because they have not made God a priority in their life. And God's interests, they exalted their own interests above God's interests. So what happens? Well, Matthew Henry says this, our considering our ways must issue in the amending of whatever we find amiss. In other words, you need to repent of it. You need to fix it. Go back and confess your sin. Ask God's forgiveness. Draw near to God. And it says he'll draw near to you. And that is exactly what happens from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. I'll just read 12 and 13 for you, though. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. See, there's the repentance. They, they turned back to God, they obeyed God, they showed God reverence, they gave God the worship he deserved. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Now that is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. Here they have rebelled, they've sinned against God. They've turned their back. They've pursued their own things and neglected the things of God. He rebukes them. They repent. And what's the first thing he says to them? I'm with you. I will be with you. Now that is very, very encouraging. If we find ourselves straying, getting lax, straying away, Lord is saying, come to me. And I'll be with you. Repent of that. I'll be with you. Demonstrates God's mercy to these people. He's showing mercy to them in their lack. You see that? 
their lack of whatever they were lacking here that he listed, all these things that you don't, you don't, you're working, you don't have anything to show for it. What he's telling them is that's a mercy to you to get you to the place of seeking me first, to putting me first. And see, he could have just let them go. He didn't. He didn't just let them go. His love just drew them, drew them, convicted them of their sin. They repented, and he says, I'm with you. I'm with you. <clears throat> now I have conclude here with um, just a couple of three questions. If you are not a Christian here today, maybe at some point in your life, you have sensed God speaking to you, drawing you. Maybe you've been stirred by reading something. And you say, oh man, I need to seek the Lord. Maybe it was reading something. Maybe it was talking to somebody. Maybe it was being in the meeting and there was a message that really convicted you. You say, man, that was really good. I, I, really, I really need to seek the Lord, but, but not yet. Now is not the time. I'll do that later when I maybe am a little older, when things are a little bit different in my life. Then, then I'll seek the Lord. Well, here's what the Lord says in Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. We do not know, and it is true, we do not know what tomorrow holds. We all have plans. Terry and I have plans. We're going to leave town here this afternoon. We don't know whether we'll get out of town this afternoon, and we don't know whether we'll get back to Kirksville. We don't know. We don't know what's in store. We plan, but God knows. So you don't know whether you have another day to give your heart to God. The other thing is, from this verse, it seems to indicate that when God's speaking to you and you put him off, you're starting that hardening process. You're starting the process of getting harder towards God. And he says, don't do that. Don't get harder. There have been many, many people who have started down the track of good intentions. They came to a meeting. They were, con- they were convicted of something in the meeting. They uh, heard something. They really did plan. They had really good intentions. They want to follow the Lord someday and they kept putting it off they didn't call on the Lord and they died in their sins they just got hard they got to the place where they couldn't hear the Holy Spirit maybe because you harden yourself enough you don't even recognize anymore the Spirit of God wooing you talking to you so if you're a Christian not a Christian today just encourage you to call on the Lord today you hear his voice don't harden your heart secondly if you are a christian maybe perhaps god has spoken to you about something and he wants you to follow through on it i don't know what it would be maybe it's something related to 
um, something personal. Maybe it's something financial. Maybe it's some, I don't know. But maybe God has, in his word, has prompted you, has spoken to you. And you read it and you heard it, thought about it. Said, yeah, that's really good. I really, and you were rejoicing in it. That's what they were doing. They're rejoicing at building the foundation of the temple. Tears. Great joy, shouts of joy. But they grew complacent, negligent in what God had told them to do. Pretty soon, you settle back in to living your life the way you always have lived your life without any thought about what God has said in this area. Don't do that. Don't do that. God is wanting you to turn to him if there's an area of need in your life. He's wanting you to get that right, turn to him for the purpose of revealing more of himself to you, drawing you close to him that he might reveal more of him, his precious self to you because he loves you. He wants that relate. That's what he desires. He desires your heart to have that relationship, that intimate relationship with you. And then the third thing I would say is, have you ever considered, do you put your interests above God's interests? Are you putting some area of your life, that interest, above what God wants? And I would just uh, remind you of something Jesus said. And it's very much related to this, this issue here. And it's in the, it's in the uh, sixth chapter of Matthew. And it's the last half of the chapter. I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it for you. The context is, what do you treasure? That's the context. What do you treasure? And the Lord, Jesus, is saying, don't, put, don't treasure up things on earth. I mean, they don't last. They're going to they're gonna rust. Moth's going to eat them up. Don't put your treasure there. It doesn't last. Instead, put your treasure in the kingdom of God, in heavenly things where it can't be destroyed. That's where your treasure should be. Then he goes on to tell them that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You notice what the heart and the treasure, (laughs) where the treasure is, there's your heart. That's where your heart is. And so what God wants is he wants himself to be your treasure. That's what he wants. He wants himself to be your treasure. And so then he goes on in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, talks to him about uh, uh, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't do it. You can't have these two things vying for number one. One of them is going to be number one. You can't, you're either going to love the one and hate the other, he says, or you're going to cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. What he's saying is the things of this life versus God. You can't have it both ways. You're either going to love one or you're going to love the other, but you can't say, oh, I love them both equally. You can't do it. That's what Christ is saying. 
Then he says, I, I know you've got some concern. Don't worry about how you're going to eat and all of, you know, clothe yourself and all this. Don't be anxious about those things. He says, look at the birds. Don't I take care of them? I feed them. Look at the flowers, how they're clothed. Solomon in all his glory wasn't clothed like these flowers. And these are things that are going to dry up and die. But you don't, I, I have more care for you. You're more important to me than flowers. And then he says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'll take care of these other things. He goes on right before that and he says, the Gentiles eagerly seek for these things. The lost world, that's what they're seeking. They're seeking treasures on earth. Christ is saying, don't put your treasure there. Don't do that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and I'll take care of you. You put me first in your life. I'll take care of you. I'll take care of every aspect of your life. I'll be with you. That's the way it's put in uh, Haggai. I'll be with you. You obey God, I'll be with you, he says. Jesus says, all these things I'll provide for you. What What an amazing thing. We can trust God with our lives all of our lives, our whole heart, we can give to him. I encourage you today to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for your people. Thank you for your promise, Lord, to be with us and to, uh, if if we're straying off, Lord, that if we will just come back and call out to you, that you'll be with us, that you'll provide for us, that you'll care for us in every area, Lord. You'll care for us. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We want to just say, take our heart today, Lord, and make it yours. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.